Want to know how to get a seat at the table in the C-suite and get senior leaders to buy into transformational change that you know that they need, but that they don't quite see yet? Welcome to Enough Already, the podcast where we tackle the mindset and messaging challenges that hold brilliant consultants and coaches back from owning the remarkable value of their strengths and hold them back from making the impact that they're destined to make through their businesses. I'm your host, Betsy Jordan, and today I'm chatting with Sarah King who currently is the Chief People and Diversity Officer for Darden Restaurants. Sarah and I met back in 2012 when she hired me as a consultant for her and the senior team at Wyndham Vacation Ownership when she was leading this massive org transformation project. And I wanted to have Sarah on the show for several reasons. Number one, I'm in the middle of what I'm calling my favorite executive series of all time. And so, of course, I had to include Sarah. She's an extraordinary leader, especially within the HR field. She is a visionary who absolutely can see a better future for the organization that she serves, but she's also a warrior and she can make this type of change happen. And she does it all through her ability to influence, which is an essential skill for consultants and coaches, both internal and external. And number two, here's the thing. One of the biggest myths that are out there about HR that many consulting mentors promote is that HR is some sort of gatekeeper that stands in the way of consultants and coaches landing business. That is simply not true. If you are in the organization development space, leadership development space, change management consulting space, coaching, HR often is your client, or at least the person who will find you and recommend you to the CEO. So Sarah's gonna give you insight into how to break into these types of organizations and connect with this type of buyer, just like I did with Sarah. And then finally, Sarah's just fun. She's real. She will show you that you can achieve substantial success and financial rewards that come along with that substantial success simply by being yourself. So you wanna own your own set of keys to the C-suite and do it in a way that's authentic to you? Then let's do this. Welcome to the show, Sarah. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Okay, so I had to have you on as part of my favorite executive series because you are one of my favorite executives. We worked together, I think it was like 10 years ago at Wyndham. Um, so tell me, just introduce yourself real quick to the audience. Tell them about who you are, what you do. Sure thing. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's Sarah King. I'm currently the Chief People and Diversity Officer at Darden Restaurants based here in Orlando, Florida. Um, I spent 20 years with a global hotel company, which is how I met Betsy. And when I'm not working, I am, you know, trying to keep my two kids out of trouble and spend time with my friends. But, you know, that's pretty fun and not that difficult. So I spend a lot of time working. So one of the funnest things about, well, first off, you are an amazingly fun person, great heart just a great person all the way around. But as a leader, one of the things I appreciated as your consultant was just how much vision you had, how much passion you had, always seeing around the other side. But I assume that it didn't, were you always like that? Like kind of take me back through your journey in leadership. Like when did, what was like your early career? When did you get into management and when did you make the leap into executive leadership? Okay, well, that's quite a story, as you know. Um, so a bit of an unconventional story, I would say. So um, I'm originally from New Zealand and uh, we, we don't have the same culture there about, you know, you've got to go to college to be successful. It's probably a more of an entrepreneurial culture 
and there's many paths to you know building a successful career and, and in fact what a successful career looks like so um I, <laughs> I I was not always like this I was very much a bit of a lost soul when I was a you know in my early 20s and couldn't really figure out what I wanted to do I worked in hospitality because I was always good at dealing with people and then I, I fell into the HR world uh, when I was in my late 20s and I was very transactional because quite frankly I don't think I really knew what I was doing um, I didn't have any experience and I didn't have any qualifications but I learned really quickly and I, I started to realize that I have a natural head for business and you know the functional stuff that the, the, the HR discipline I can learn I had a couple of really good mentors along the way which certainly helps but also you've got to be willing to you know take their counsel and take their advice so I was really just such a sponge um, I think I started but, but a very transactional sponge and I really I, I remember people using the word strategic and I used to think I don't really know what that means and we didn't have Google in those days so I couldn't Google it and so I just kept paying attention um, and trying to figure out what exactly that meant and then probably you know in the middle of my career I started moving into more senior roles but still only at that director VP level so started to get a little bit of a feel for having to connect the dots and not just do the work um, and then probably gosh maybe about 15 years ago which I don't feel like I'm that old but clearly I am um, I moved my, my company moved me to a role that was um, supporting a lot of business units across a lot of different countries in Europe, Middle East, Africa, and India. And I think that was probably when I had to make the transition from being the, you know, the doer of all things to, as I often tell people, conducting the band instead of playing the instrument, because I had um, so much geographical disbursement and, and so many different um, countries to deal with and different cultures and different languages. And it was just completely and utterly impossible to do everything just through you know muscling through and doing the heavy lifting so I think that was really the first job where I started to appreciate the importance of influence over authority because frankly I didn't actually have any authority I had all these people with these dotted lines into me right and so at the end of the day I was I was a corporate matrix leader but they were in country listening to their leadership teams in country so that was a very um, big milestone for me in terms of learning how to get out of the transactional stuff and move into the transformational stuff. And so then I moved over here to the US and, and took on a much bigger role, which was about 12 years ago. Uh, and that was really, you know, I, I didn't know it at the time, but looking back, you know, hindsight's 2020, that was when I was able to understand that I'd had this great experience working in EMEA that had taught me how to influence without authority. Um, and I was able to sort of apply it into this organization, which frankly was not used to that kind of HR. They had had very transactional um, HR leaders that were, you know, not thinking about how to connect the dots with business strategy and people strategy. So in a nutshell, I think that that's, that's how I got there. And then obviously I had the opportunity to you know, as I built my brand, I had the opportunity to, you know, dip into things that weren't within the true HR world, which is how you and I met, because I could 
business problems that weren't being solved. And, and the great thing about leading HR is that you get to see across the whole organization. So you see all the pain points. You see how the left hand sometimes is not talking to the right hand. You see some of the, you know, the working in silos and working as an island. Um, and so I think when you and I worked together, that was the first opportunity to, opportunity that I had to sort of say, hey, I can see all this from 50,000 feet and I think I know how we can address this. And it really just took off from there. And then in my current role, um, it's just, you know, it's almost become second nature to me because like any habit, when you practice it more and more, it becomes a very natural way of being. And it's very much the expectation of my CEO and my leadership team that I'm thinking about the business, even though I'm running the HR function, I actually run other things that are not true HR too. So that helps. But, you know, I'm there as a senior leader of our business, not the leader of the HR function and everything else that doesn't really have a home. So, so I think that's... Are you saying that you only had the the chief HR role at Wyndham for two years when I met you? You were like, yep. you were initiating that big of a change project with only two years that I yes. did not realize that was that yes. new. So how did you get into such a senior role so fast? Like, what do you think is the secret to your, to that? Is it that you had that entrepreneurial point of view where you were not constrained by the boxes within HR? Was yeah. it honing your influence, leading without influence skills, or is there anything else that allowed you to get that credibility and land that senior kind of role where other HR people had probably had a lot more years of experience than you had at the time? So I think there's a couple of things, you know, number one, you have to be able to naturally connect with people. Um, I, I think, you know, the nature of the HR role is dealing with people, right? And, and so you have to be able to naturally connect. I, I call it the likability factor. It certainly helps. It's not necessary, but it certainly helps. But I, I, I do believe that the fact that I never studied HR helped me because I didn't come at leading the function with the approach of like, well, here's what the HR book says. Um, and I think I'm just fortunate that, you know, it worked out well for me because I do have a natural interest in, and I guess, capability for business and how things work and how things connect and, and being able to say, well, this is broken over here, but here's some root causes over here and, and just being able to um, see all that. And I, I don't know what that's called. I think it's, you know, I think it's just something that fortunately- Systems pretty... thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and having the ability to do that. Um, but I also have over the years just, you know, gotten results. I mean, you obviously have to get results to be considered for promotion, but I feel like I've done it in a way that is- helpful for people um, and I've always tried to understand the pain points for you know all areas of the organization and not just think about it from the perspective of well this is what I think HR should do because we're HR right so yeah it's a, it's a great question and, and I guess it's just a combination of you know having some courage um, having an inquisitive mind um, being a naturally born driver, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but also understanding that you can't just drive, drive, drive um, without thinking about the impact that you have on people. 
So it seems like you really set up yourself and your organization to be not an HR or traditional HR function, but more internal consultants to the organization, influencing change, influencing what needs to be done, solving problems, and where appropriate, the traditional HR tools, but do what it takes to solve the problems and be that partner to the business. Is that accurate or? That is accurate. And, you know, I remember years and years and years ago, somebody gave me this great sort of, you know, best practice model of, of an HR, of an effective transformational HR leader. And I remember there was four key components of it. Um, you know, the obvious ones are employee advocate, mm-hmm. um, change agent, mm-hmm. um, business partner. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one was administrative expert. Now, I, I, I make this point because you don't get to be a business partner and a change agent and an employee advocate if you can't get the fundamentals right. So there is a component of HR where we have to make sure that we get the basic fundamentals right so that our, our people have a good experience as employees. Um, so, you know, that's not my happy place, but I've always known how to hire people that are really, really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, but because if you can't, I don't know, pay people properly or get them hired on time or do all the fundamental basic things, then you have a credibility issue. So you don't even get to play in those other three quadrants. And so I was always very aware that I needed to make sure that we were, you know, excellent at that, um, as well as having, you know, strong financial acumen so that we earned the right to be thought partners, business partners, you know, advocates, all those other great things that is where I prefer to spend my time. Yeah, so it's like your team like kind of paid the tolls, you know, you paid the foundational elements. By the yeah. way, um, that's the Dave Ulrich model, I believe. Dave Ulrich and Jill Connors, I think are the one who wrote that. I think the assessment is somewhere. I'll, I'll find it for other people. Um, to look at because that was really transformational for me when I was getting my master's in HR. And I think that you, there's some things that you and I might've had as a philosophical alignment that we were not aware, but that is that part. Like I like the strategic and change agent didn't like the other part, but you have to get that stuff done. You got to do the bread and butter of that part. So it seems like being really clear on what your happy place is in hiring people for the parts that's not your happy place. And then for the parts of the business that do need to influence the rest of the organization, because you got all of those things situated, now you have this part. But you mentioned something else about the business acumen and the financial acumen. I find mm-hmm. a lot of consultants, coaches, and um, HR people, this is not also one of the other things that is not their happy place. How do you develop yourself and your team around the financial acumen? And how did you learn to speak the language of business? So first of all, I don't ever let anybody on my team say, oh, I'm not very good with numbers. That is like, that is not allowed because you don't get to have that option when you work in business. You've got to figure out how to get good with numbers. And I knew that very early on. I knew that, you know, if if I wanted to have a voice that I needed to be able to speak to the CEO and the CFO in a way that um, showed them that I wasn't just coming at something with, you know, a warm, fuzzy HR perspective, that I had thought about the return on investment. Um, In my early days, I read a lot of books um, and I had a lot of great mentors. One of my very earliest mentor was somebody that at the time was my managing director, but he had come up through the finance 
world and he was really really helpful in impressing upon me the need to be able to speak business language if you want to get a seat at the table you don't just get it because you're in a job you you earn Mm -hmm. it because you know you can speak business language um so I'm forever grateful that you know he he gave me that lesson and again fortunately I think I you know have enough intellect to be able to grasp you know the importance around you know the business case and all those things um whilst still being that employee champion uh but I just I just sought people that that I admired that were like really good at the things that I wasn't super strong at um, and just learned, right? I was just such a sponge. I'm like, I want to learn. I want to be, I want to be able to sit in a room and have this conversation the way she can or the way he can. I want people to, um, you know, see me as a credible leader that's thinking about the business and not just the employees. Cause it's a balance in this role, right? I, I have yeah. to, I have to support the, needs of the business and the management teams as well as supporting the needs of the employees um so again I, I go back to saying that I'm a naturally born driver I think I just am so competitive with myself and I hate not knowing anything um and I think because I never went to college I always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about wanting to make sure that nobody could ever hold that against me so I over-indexed and overcompensated to make sure that nobody could ever accuse me of not deserving to be in the room so it's almost like you took what could have been a weakness and you made it into a superpower is you keep this learning mindset. And that's, has, do you feel like that learning mindset has like allowed you to move into different roles, different opportunities and probably most move from different countries too? Yeah, no, most definitely because I am a naturally curious person. I get very easily bored. Um, and so that's probably what fuels my, you know, if I'm starting to get bored, I'm like, well, let me go over here and see, you know, like maybe I can, dive in here and see if I can make an impact here. Um, I've always wanted to make sure that I, I show up every day and add value. And so, you know, that combined with being a natural driver, combined with um, being very inquisitive, um, some might say nosy, um, <laughs> I think is just what drives me to always be looking at other, other ways to add value. And similarly, one of the other things I've learned is just because something just because something is always set in your area doesn't mean it's the right place for it. So I think I've always been able to go into new roles and go, you know, why do we have compliance here? It should be in law. Or why do we have safety and security here? It should be in our risk management team. And so being um, non-territorial has also helped me because I always think about what's the best place for this work to get done in the organization. Not like, oh, let me see how much of an empire I can build, which is something I see people do at their own peril. Yeah, there's so many ways to go down with this conversation. Um, I want to go back to what you said about the learning thing, and I want to go back to the empire and then how you naturally sort things. Um, one of the things, as you were saying, is a transformational leader. And you and I encountered this in the change project we were working on together. And I see this all the time. The number one barrier to change is that this is the way we've always done it. You know, like mm-hmm. you might like you might put a solution in there. But then, you know, it just like it just reverts back to this is the way we've always done it in just a new format. So and when you're dealing with these large companies, so you're working right now in a very established company, you work with a very established company before. How do you break a team? How do you how do you break a team out of that? This is the way we've always done it mindset to get back into 
that learner point of view, because that's the whole thing. One of the things that frustrated you and I is like we do a lot of research. We find out from the customers what they want. We find out with employees what they want. And then we present the data and they're like, oh, we don't care. We're just going to keep doing it the way that we always want to do it. How do you how do you manage that? And how do you create that kind of learning culture? Well, I think there's a few points to touch on there. Number one, I have learned um, very well over the years about understanding organizational readiness. I am a naturally impatient person. Um, and so I've had to temper my impatience and and understand more around organizational readiness because sometimes it's about timing, mm. right? Sometimes it's about timing. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure I did that then, but I, you know, knowing them, what, maybe that's what taught me that lesson is that sometimes it's about timing because ironically, some of the stuff that you and I worked on has now been implemented and you and I don't need the credit for it. It's not about the credit, right? right. Um, and so it's just about patience and timing. Um, secondly, I also think I've learned that you have to help people understand that going through change, which people are typically not super comfortable with change, and I am, I love it. And again, a strength over maximized can become a weakness. So you've got to figure out how to bring people along and help them understand how changing is going to be better for them than staying the same. Mm. And so for me, um, you know, in both these last two jobs, I've worked with very established leadership teams that have worked together as a team. And I've come in and been the new girl. And that's been, you know, challenging because I can see pretty quickly that there's opportunities for change. But you don't want to go in guns blazing and say, I know better than you. And, and you know, then people put their defensive walls up quite rightly. So I think I've learned patience. And I've learned timing and I've learned how to bring people along so that they get there on their own and say, oh, wait a minute, this is better for me or my team or my department or this company without me, you know, jamming it down their throats, which frankly, you know, in the earlier days of my career, I, I would just be like, well, you know, you're all idiots if you can't see that this is a better way of doing things. And, you know. That's um, super engaging to get buy-in. So I don't know if it's age or wisdom or experience or a combination of all three, but I've, I've learned patience, timing, and how to articulate the what's in it for me, for them. So what about this idea around the non-territorial? I think that's really interesting because you're in the C-suite and the C-suite, mm -hmm. if anything, is very territorial. So you're being countercultural um, by being in the C-suite by spot not by not being territorial in the c-suite well i mean i think that depends on your c-suite um our c-suite is is not territorial at all not to say i haven't worked for some that are um but certainly the the more i come along in my career the more i don't want to have to deal with that um you know the where i have issues more is with my direct reports and if i can see that something is not sitting where it should from an org structure perspective, and I talk to them about making the change, they take it personally and they feel like they're, you know, something's being taken away from them, which is where I think, you know, when I mentioned earlier, you've got to bring them along and explain the why. But, you know, I've started saying to people, so help me understand, because when I joined my current role, there were some things in, in, in my, you know, group that just didn't, flat out didn't belong there. And I knew that. And so I'm like, I think we need to put this there and that there. And people were horrified. I'm like, okay, so 
like help me understand why you would be concerned about giving up responsibility for something because it's got a better home which means less work for you and I'm not take, touching your pay I mean right. it's just to me it's an intelligence test because now I can focus on things that I can actually impact that are of greater value and often what I find is the stuff that people want to hold on to is highly administrative busy work mm-hmm. and it's not value add mm-hmm. so you know I've really had to help people shift their thinking and I think I've you know I've definitely gotten my team, I've, I've been where I am now for five years and I've gotten my team into that place, but it was, it, was, it was some tough going because people do take it personally. And look, it's easy for me to sit here and at the top of the org chart and say, oh, don't worry about me taking stuff off you. I think as people are trying to build their careers, they're wanting to prove that, you know, they're great. But being great and adding value is not a reflection of how much stuff that you own. I think it's interesting is like one of the things I deal with when I mentor people in their consulting and coaching businesses is I they leave corporate and they have a direct line authority responsibility budget or have you and then they move over here and everything's influenced and like you don't understand all the power is in the white space of the organization. If you can go in and you influence and you can create this change, you don't want to have anything on the org chart. You want to like reduce everything. If anything's closer to the day to day. That's more the transactional stuff. If it's not on the org chart, that's the stuff you want to go after. You want to shape thinking around those. And it's a very hard message to get across, but it seems like that that's where your philosophy around influence, the leading via influence and the power of leading by influence and being a value add, you know, is this just something that is a mindset that you and I happen to share or are these transferable skills that, that somebody, like if you were going to transfer the skill of saying, let go of the white the black and white black the black space in the organization go after the white space the value add the the things that are not there that you can see how how would you develop somebody or what could you suggest that helps somebody develop in that area well I, I think you've got to step back and explore why you're gravitating towards what is probably easier right at the end of the day human beings are creature you know creatures of habit and so often it's easier to go into something that's tangible because it feels like you can, you know, make an impact or prove your worth or show what you can do. Um, so, you know, I would be asking myself, how do I, you know, I used the word courageous before, how much courage do I have to want to, you know, step over into this space that's maybe a little bit more murky, but risk versus reward, right? Because mm-hmm. You know, I can tell you right now, if I was working with a consultant that came in and sort of told me something I already know, I'd be like, well, that's nice. I got it validated. If I was working with a consultant that came in and held the mirror up in a way that I hadn't seen before and said, look at this opportunity, that is a hook that is much more powerful than telling me what I already know. Right. So you got to ask yourself questions about, are you gravitating towards your comfort zone? Um, versus wanting to have some courage and, and, you know, looking outside the, the the box a little bit and thinking about how you can connect different dots that people maybe didn't even know were there. I look at it as much as a vision. Like sometimes it's like the stuff that you see, like you go into the room and it's like, you just happen to see it. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's like, it's just the invisible stuff just becomes like, well, can't you see it? It's right here. And it's like, well, it's, it's it's an idea. I'm like, but look, it's right here. Don't you want to I go literally, after? I literally had this conversation with somebody yesterday. And it's funny, I've realized that I do this thing. So in my office at work, 
whenever I'm trying to help people like think more broadly, I point up to the corner of my office and I'm like, you know, I can see the vision for this. I can see how it's going to happen. Now I've learned that not everybody's brains work like that. Um, And, you know, I've been assessed to death and I'm a highly conceptual person that likes to ideate. Um, Not everybody's like that. And that's why I need to put people around me that can, you know, land the plane. Um, But, and I don't know why I'm like that. I think we're just, to some extent, I think we're born like that. Um, But, you know, I, I, I can get frustrated when people don't see and I still don't know why I look up. Into the I do that too, because, because that's where like, there's something in our brains. that's like, I see it, it's right here. Yes. And so it's and, like, when I'm thinking it's like, it's up here. And it's just, to me, it's just so incredibly clear. Um, but some of my leadership opportunities over the years have been, well, not everybody thinks like you. And then they're looking at you like you've got three heads because they just cannot understand what on earth has possessed you to think that that's a good idea. Right. Um, so, so much of, a, of this is about understanding your audience and understanding your, you, you know, the people that you're working with, whether it's, you know, as an employer, as a consultant, like what makes them tick? How do they make decisions? And some of the best lessons I ever learned was working with my former CFO, who you, you know, because he was such an opposite to me in terms of how he thinks about things and how he makes decisions. And I would get frustrated because I didn't think he trusted me. And he would get frustrated because he thought I was being, you know, cavalier. And when I started to understand how to talk about my vision, but give him the plan of how we're going to get there and what the end's going to look like and how it's going to be better for the organization, it completely changed our relationship. And, and again, built more credibility and built more trust. And so I didn't have to jump through as many hoops because he always trusted how I got there, but it's definitely been a challenge, right? And I think that is one of the challenges dealing with people in general is you've got to understand who you're dealing with and not try and come at it the way you think, because it's not about you. Yeah. So it's like, it's adapting your language Mm -hmm. to who you're talking about. So if you're not naturally an idea person, so some consultants aren't naturally idea people, they're process people. Mm -hmm. So they may or may not be the right fit for you. Right. Or maybe they are for certain circumstances. Right. That is one of the things I'm curious about is, so there's a lot of things that you seem to naturally be able to do on your own is you know how to do org design on your own. You know how mm-hmm. to ideate on your own. You know how to influence on your own. What motivated you to look for a consultant when you and I were working together? Like why, when you could do it on your own? Um, well, partially because as you mentioned earlier, I had only been there two years. So even though I could see the opportunity, I hadn't, I didn't have the street cred. Um, and I do think that in certain situations, executives like to hear an external perspective to validate the thinking. Um, and you and I joked a lot about this good cop, bad cop um, <laughs> role that we both, that we each played through this whole process. I think if I'd have spent another five years in that organization and then gone and done that work by myself, it might've been a different outcome. But at the time I recognized that I needed additional horsepower with somebody who was perceived as, and is an expert in that space. I think that you're bringing up an important part about the good cop, bad cop kind of thing in terms of our partnership. There's the, some of it is maybe the expert perspective. Maybe it's the outside perspective, you know, that Mm -hmm. I could bring the outside perspective Mm -hmm. to validate your perspective. There is something really powerful about the good cop, bad cop when 
you do have a consultant who partners with the internal consult, the internal consulting or the internal organization. One mm-hmm. of the things that I'm very clear on is like a lot of, a lot of consultants look at HR as like, oh, you're the impediment to get to the C-suite. I'm like, she's in the C-suite. I'm just going to work, you know, we're going to work together on the change. This is your change. And we did work together in that team where mm-hmm. I, you said, you said you were the good cop and I was a bad cop and I corrected it always where it's like, no, you're the good cop and I'm the ultimate good cop. I'm not a bad cop. I just, you know, <laughs> but I could say things that you can't say because right. my, I, I could say those things. I'm external. So right. we could decide like, well, when do you need the internal person with the internal savvy? And when do you need the external person who could say whatever, because I'm only here for a little time, a little amount of time. My job's not at risk. My bonus isn't at risk. My career path's right. not at risk. I could say, things that you can't say. So I think there's some value from that standpoint, even if you did the work five years later that you had the skill sets, but having that partner could be beneficial. Definitely. And I think, you know, everybody's at a different place. I mean, I feel like I have much more confidence 10 years later to say things that maybe I wouldn't have said 10 years ago. Um, But the things that I'm working on now are higher stakes. And so, you know, having some expertise where I don't have it, I have no issue, you know, doing that. I'm, it's a bit like the territorial conversation. It's like, it, it's not about that. It's, it's about what's the best outcome for the organization. So what kind of consultants do you, or coaches do HR executives look for? Like, what are, what are the big hot things right now that a consultant should focus on in order to turn the head of an HR executive like yourself? Um, so for me personally, I think having um, a, sort of an understanding of all of the pressures that exist in a corporate environment at the moment, um, you know, it is it is not easy in any business environment at the moment for all the reasons that everybody knows, right? Inflation, the labor market, um, political, you know, geopolitical instability, um, the great resignation, the great reevaluation, um, pandemic, you know, ongoing fears in certain geographies around, you know, health and safety because of the pandemic. So I think understanding the pain points that organizations and executives are dealing with is really important. So because I think that creates an ability to empathize, um, you know, the ability to connect with people. And I always say you don't have to be, you know, a raging extrovert to connect with people. There's all sorts of different styles that connect. And quite frankly, that's what I do look for with coaches and consultants is what's the right fit for this particular person or this particular initiative. Um, And for me, because of the nature of our organization, I need somebody that can marry the academic part of it with a very pragmatic approach we're an incredibly pragmatic organization so if somebody comes in and is too sort of out in the ether with the the academic side of it it's just not going to land well yeah I don't think it lands well for any organization really it's it's being more around how can I make it make sense to this particular organization is there specific um, gaps like in that HR people won't typically staff up and say, well, we really typically do hire out for this kind of expertise. Like, I don't think, do you have somebody, you know, like it's agile leadership, a big thing for you, emotional intelligence, like, or, or are there certain topic areas that are important or is there a certain subject matter expertise, like org design or strategy, or is there something that is really important right now that might've been different 
even a couple of years ago? Um, I mean, I think it depends and I'm hesitating because a lot's changed in our organization since a couple of years ago. I used to have internal org design capability. And then when the pandemic hit, we restructured like a lot of companies um, and we had an early retirement program. So I did lose a lot of capability in that space. Um, and so, you know, if we were going to do embark on, you know, some big org design work, I would probably want to think about supplementing our internal capabilities with, you know, not so much the philosophy, because I think I've got that, but just having fresh eyes, right? Anytime you've mm -hmm. been in an organization, like I always say, once you've been in a company for 12 months, you've lost your objectivity. So yes. the objectivity piece of it is really important for me. Um, and we did a big org design uh, sort of analysis um, around centralizing our digital marketing capabilities, uh, but it was before COVID. And so in that particular instance, because there were a lot of, stakeholders we knew that we could do it ourselves but we wanted to create this combination of internal expertise and external credibility mm. um, because some of the stakeholders were very much people that were like well what would you know about it or what would you know about digital marketing um, but now i mean it's it's a little bit of a different landscape and we're, we're not doing that kind of work as such um, but i always am looking for if, if we're going to do something that's, you know, pretty significant, it's like, how do you supplement your internal capabilities with some external capabilities and perspective? I think those fresh eyes and that objective approach is really important. Yeah, it seems like that that's the big thing, that it's not really, it's not like you don't know what you need to do, but mm -hmm. it either could be is from a credibility standpoint, it's better to have somebody else do it and to have that fresh set of eyes and to have somebody, I would imagine for you having someone to, you know, bounce ideas with and, yeah. you know, have that think partnership going back and forth. Um, it seems like for you too, that it's very important that someone partners with you and not, and not treat you as not, uh, uh, as like, as the client. I know my experience with you, it's like, I can't imagine working with you where, I did not treat you as you were the client versus the CEO as the client. Yes. And I think, you know, maybe that's a sensitivity that HR practitioners have because, you know, for years we've fought to have a seat at the table. And honestly, I think that one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that it's elevated the importance of and the impact of having strong HR leadership in your organization. And so I think that whenever we feel that we are being sort of circumvented, it, it's, it becomes a little uh, um, frustrating. But again, you have to have earned the right for somebody to feel that they can partner with you and not go to the finance person or the marketing person or the, or the CEO. So it's a balance. Um, and that's, again, when, you know, you've got to really focus. I really focus on making sure that I choose the right fit what we're looking to do and somebody that I think will be a partner um, but also I'm not super territorial where it's like hey if you need to go talk to the CEO or talk to the CFO or talk to the CMO then by all means go do that but um, you know don't um, disintermediate me in the process because you know I know about this I know more about this organization um, looking at it across the board from a people and process and 
you know, workflow perspective than any one of those individuals might. Yeah, for sure. And you're going to have a, you're going to be the one who's going to be carrying the change when the consultant leaves. So it makes absolutely. I had, I got that advice all the time when I was a new consulting business owner and it never made sense to me. Like, I don't understand. I'm not, I'm not living this change. I don't, I'm not owning this. Somebody's got to own this change if I have right. any hope of making a difference. So that doesn't even make sense. So I'm glad that to get that validation from what I was rejecting as bad advice. So right. when you think about companies now, you mentioned the several different pain points that we're all aware of, you know, the great resignation, the inflation, job market, all of that. Um, how is it affecting companies like yours that are established, like the goals that they're trying to achieve? Like what goals does a company that has been number one in its space for a long time, like what are the goals on the horizon and what are these things doing? Like, what are these pain points standing in the way of what kind of goals are they not achieving that they really want to? And would it be beneficial to have a, a, anybody like just getting that think partnership around, like, how do we get this company? Like, let's not whack-a-mole all these problems. Let's Mm -hmm. just get beyond the problems. And what's the goal we're trying to achieve so we can get creative. Well, I think for us and, and probably most companies that I know of when I talk to my peers, um, you know, getting the right people into your organization is a critical goal. Um, There's so much churn. There's so much turnover. Um, People are reevaluating what they want from their employer, from their career, from their work-life balance. And so I think, you know, making sure you've got a really strong employee value proposition Mm. is really critical and, and you know some companies are naturally good at that because they've got the size and scale and expertise in-house but I'm not sure that you know I think in the small to medium enterprise space I think a lot of those organizations are struggling to understand the importance of investing in an employee value proposition because I don't care how good your strategy is you know our strategies withstood the test of a pandemic we're, we're good we don't have the right people in the right place at the right time doing the right things. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, and so it's been really interesting to hear our leaders talk about, you know, as they're doing team meetings and brand conferences that they are definitely doubling down on culture as a competitive advantage because we have to have the people to bring our, our brands to life. That's an interesting thing. I haven't heard it said that way as culture as a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. I've, I, in all those years of, I, as consultant, as a consultant, as an OD consultant is all about culture and environment. We just talk about it being healthy. We never really talked about culture as a competitive advantage. That's a really interesting concept. Yeah. And, you know, we've fortunately, um, well, unfortunately we've lost people over the last couple of years, like everybody else has. Fortunately, they're coming back because what they're being lured away for is not, enough for the dysfunctional cultures that some of the people are telling us they had to endure and I think humans in general have reevaluated what they will and won't put up with um, and so you know we've we've made a conscious decision that we're going to invest in you know our culture as a competitive advantage whether that's making sure we've got the best leaders in place making sure we've got a, a, a you know competitive um, uh, total rewards offering making sure that we are developing and growing our people, making sure that we have a culture that doesn't tolerate, you know, discrimination, harassment, 
um, and making sure we've got a culture where people can come to work and bring their whole true authentic selves to work every single day without, Mm -hmm. you know, feeling unsafe. I mean, there's a lot of different arms to this, but that is literally what I spend my time thinking about is how do we win based on having a culture as a competitive advantage? And if your company, if any company had culture as a competitive advantage, if you're picturing that you had that, you got all the right people in the right places, what goal would the company be able to achieve that others couldn't, you know, would it, is it market dominance? Is it brand, you know, the, does it, how does that translate in terms of like, you know, the ROI, if you will, if you were going to put the business case in front of your clients and say, we need to make culture is a competitive advantage and we're going to have the right people at the right time. And you could put the business case around the attrition and the turnover and all of that. Mm-hmm. But if you were going to connect it to the bigger goals, what, what goal would you connect it to if you were putting that business case together? So I would say that we already do connect it and we connect it to winning market share, right? We're in an industry that is relatively mature. So it's not what I would call a high growth industry, but it is a, um, you know, it's a winners and losers industry. And so for us, it's like, how do we come back stronger after the last two years and capture more market share? That's Mm. really what we're super focused on. So that's really important because a lot of HR people don't talk about market share. And that's a really Really? important thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) <laughs> trying to get people to talk about like the 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 business outcomes they don't know you're, you well and and it's funny because not every company's going to be thinking about market share right some companies might be wanting to drive margin um and you know we obviously look at that but there's only so much margin we can drive in our particular industry so you've got to look at your industry and understand what your metrics are that signal to your board or your owners or your shareholders or whatever the case may be like what are you being measured on and as an HR practitioner you better damn well know what your company's success is being measured on like to me that's just mind-blowing that people would not understand that and I would say the same thing is if you're a consultant who's working for an organization you need to know what the success criteria of the company is that you're going into otherwise you're going to whack-a-mole problems but the thing that I think is interesting is there's a certain trend compared to when I first started in consulting is that we're just like, be, and when I first started in consulting, or maybe it's because I was at Disney, everything was vision driven, you know, like, yes, we want to have business results, but it's all about like the customer experience and it's all around the vision. Like, this is what we want this property to be, or this is what we want it to be. And it seems like over the years, like company vision around, not just like going straight to like, what's the pure business results seems to have lessened or be less important because of the pressure for the 90 day numbers and the pressure for the, the shorter term profitability, you know, from your standpoint, how do you keep as a visionary leader, you know, how do you, how do you keep the vision, the purpose, the bigger reason for why the company exists alive in the hearts of minds of the people around you? So it's like, how do you balance this, this business side with the why, why does this company exist? Well, and so once again, I feel like I'm very fortunate because my company is, you know, obviously we have certain financial results we have to achieve. We're a publicly held company, but we've just been having this conversation in the current context of just the volatility of the operating environment. And we've made a conscious decision to be very mindful of what we're here to do um, versus you know, 
committing to a financial plan that's going to cause us to make short-term decisions that are going to negatively impact the long-term sustainability of the business. And so again, you know, I've been in both environments where everything's about like, what are we going to do this quarter to make the numbers? And I will never work in that environment again. That's a personal choice. Um, so it's not that difficult for us because, you know, our organization, our culture, our leadership, our CEO, we're all about like our purpose and what we're here to do every single day. Like everything we do, how we communicate, the decisions we make is all about thinking about what at the end of the day, what are we here to do other than make money? That's table stakes, right? If you're not making money, you can't do anything good for, for the most part um, in, in the environment that I work in. Um, so it's become a, a, an interesting thing over the last two years. We had to make a lot of really difficult decisions. And a lot of people have asked us, how did you do it? Because for the most part, we've made pretty good decisions. And I said, we always kept our values and our vision at the core of our decision-making conversations. And as we explored different options, we're like, okay, well, how does this tap back into our purpose and our values? Um, and so that's wow. a leadership yeah, and I, I feel very blessed that I that I get to be part of a team like that. But I also chose to be part of a team like that. I think that now, like now, I think I have the big picture around like what is the secret of your success? Is it seems like as your career and you were moving up, it was always being that curious, uh, curious, hungry learner with your ambition, and then mm -hmm. this perspective around you as an entrepreneur. And you taking charge of like your career, what you want, the vision and what influencing, however you imagine it to be. And really building off of that ability, that skill set. And then where it seems like your career went into a flywheel is when you put yourself in an environment where what you brought to the table and the environment and the culture and the company and the leadership and the company, everything about it fit you. And there's just been a flywheel that's been at a different place where you might not have gotten there in an environment. So it's like, it's still that entrepreneur, that entrepreneurial spirit of saying, I'm going to take my career to where it needs to go. I own my leadership brand. I don't know if you talk about your own leadership brand, but it seems like you have a very clear leadership brand. And when your leadership brand was not being supported, you went and found where your leadership brand matched the company brand. And now this is just a seamless kind of experience for you. Am I hearing it right or am I? I mean, I don't think I could have articulated that any better. Um, oh, that, okay. that was perfect. And, and what I will tell you is I spend a lot of time now, you know, getting asked for advice and mentoring others. And I always say to them, chase leaders and culture and the money and the titles will come because I wouldn't be where I am if I wasn't in an environment with a culture and the support of leadership that understands and supports my style, right? If I was in a more buttoned up formal environment, I probably wouldn't be where I am. Frankly, I probably wouldn't have stayed there anyway. So maybe it would have been like, you know, sliding doors movie and I would have ended up here anyway. But I, I just honestly, if I could tell my younger self one thing, it would be like chase leaders and culture and I've done that it was completely accidental but somewhere in my psyche I must have known that those were the things that were important to me because I had opportunities to do other things I'm like that is this it's not it's not it's not right it's out of alignment with who I am and what I want and what I value and and 
um, every time, the only time in my career that I had a, an icy patch was when I had a leader whose values were just so completely misaligned with mine. And, and I, I nearly, you know, made a change and as luck would have it, things turned out differently and I ended up staying with the organization, but that was a really valuable lesson for me. Um, and I just, I try so hard with all these young people. It's like, I know you want the big title and the big money, but it's a short-term decision. If you, if you follow your heart and chase great leaders that will get the best out of you, your, you talked about the flywheel, you might get this opportunity now that's more money now and a bigger title now, but you've got to think about the long-term and you've got to think about that flywheel because with great cultures and great leaders, your runway is going to be way longer than the short-term decision. That's awesome. And we are so aligned because how do you know that, how did you know that one of my two wrap-up questions for my interviews is if you had one piece of advice for your younger self, what would it be? <laughs> so that's one of my wrap-up questions. So thank you so much for sharing that one. But my last one is, is there anything else that you want to share with me about your leadership journey or your time as an executive or being in HR, consulting, coaching, anything? And I just didn't ask you the right question. Um. No, I think you've touched on everything. I, I, I really genuinely believe that people buy people, not products. And so trying to put myself in the shoes of, you know, the people that are listening today or watching today, it's like, you know, you, you've building that connection with whoever it is that you want to work with. Don't underestimate the value of that. The work is really important. And the work that you will do is obviously you have an expertise in a certain thing or topic or subject or whatever it may be or initiative or strategy um, but you know there's more Betsy Jordans out there than just Betsy Jordan but I think when we met it was such an instant chemistry um, and so the, the, the expertise combined with that chemistry um, that's what sealed the deal and I think that people underestimate the importance of chemistry and connection and likability and, and, you know, think about that as much as you think about like, here's all the great things I can do for you. I think that partnership and that human and emotional connection is absolutely critical. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah. This is wonderful. I'm so glad to have you on the show. And it feels like so, so interesting to understand your journey from this angle. And I always respected you before, but now it's just, I'm in awe of what you are able to accomplish and just your whole mindset. This was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And it was my pleasure. It's always great to see you. Thank you for tuning in. If today's episode lit a fire in you, please rate and review enough already on Apple podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're looking for your next step, visit me on my website at betsyjordan.com and it's Betsy Jordan with a Y, and you'll learn all about our end-to-end -end services that are custom designed to accelerate your success. Don't wait, start today.